Welcome back to the YouthWorks Effective Ministry Podcast, the podcast that helps you have an effective youth and children's ministry in your local church. My name is Tim Bealharts, and I'm a children's ministry advisor at YouthWorks. This episode is part two of our Postcards from Nashville mini-series. I had the pleasure of catching up with a number of the presenters, authors, and thought leaders of intergenerational ministry at the 2023 Intergenerate Conference in Nashville just a month or so ago, and I was able to record short little snippets with each of them. Well, in this episode, we have Christina Embry, who is founder and director of Refocus Ministry in Kentucky. Christine has a fantastic blog of intergenerational articles at refocusministry.org and also coaches churches in intergenerational ministry practice. Christine shares about what she has seen are the bridges and barriers to successful intergenerational ministry. After that, we have Tony Souder from the Pray For Me campaign. Tony was hosting a table across the hallway from me and we got chatting in between sessions. Tony and his team have really taken on board the importance of having intentional intergenerational friendships for our children and teenagers, and has structured a way to have an intentional prayer network around every child. I was blown away by the practical application that the Pray For Me campaign takes to intergenerational ministry. I'm sure you'll be delighted by Tony and also want to check out his prayformecampaign.com. Finally, we have Jean Rolkapartain from the Search Institute. Search Institute is one of America's most prominent research institutes, and Gene is a senior scholar, so he's big news. Gene shared with us some of the key findings that he has come up with on how to actively and practically form developmental relationships across all generations. We've got one more of these postcard episodes coming up in a few weeks with Amy Yu, Stacey Davis and Steve Case. So make sure you subscribe to catch that and all the other conversations we're having at YouthWorks about effective children's and youth ministry in your church. But for now, let's jump in with Christina, Tony and Jean. Here I am again with another postcard from Nashville with Christina Embry. Uh, Christina holds a D-Min in spiritual formation and the Minister of Generational Discipleship for the Great Lakes Conference of the Brethren in Christ. Also founder and director of Refocus Ministry in Kentucky, which answers a lot of my first question, which is, where are you in the world of intergenerational ministry? (laughs) Yes, a lot of the things you just mentioned. But um, yeah, I work with Refocus Ministry. We started as a blog in 2014, and a lot of people read it and started asking for more. So in 2021, we became a nonprofit, and we do a lot of coaching and consulting with churches who are looking to connect generations at church and at home. And I also do serve within our denomination as the Minister of Generational Discipleship. Fantastic. We'll we'll come back to refocus uh, in a sec, but I wanted to ask, when did the idea of intergenerationality, that term, or at least the concepts behind it, sort of first enter your horizon? What sparked your interest in that as a ministry philosophy, ministry idea? So in 2011, I was serving as a children and family ministry um, pastor. And during that time, I just recognized that I was telling the parents to do a lot of work on discipleship at home. 
but they were overwhelmed and they hadn't ever seen that modeled for them and they were feeling kind of lost. And I just recognized the need at that point for like the whole community to come around these parents to help them to do the very thing that everybody commits to at either infant baptism or dedication of raising these children in Christ. I did not have terminology for it. Um, but then I was blessed enough to go to a group Kidman conference and I took a four-part workshop with Scotty May, um, who's a professor at Wheaton, and she wrote a book with uh, Catherine Stonehouse on listening to children on their spiritual journey. And she introduced me to this concept of intergenerational ministry and a connected community, and um, I was sold on it. Uh, and immediately I knew it was what I was looking for and didn't have the words for. And um, I just started doing more and more research into that area and realized that it is, it is a lacking um, and necessary part of the community and the church. And since that time, I've been kind of banging that drum. <laughs> yeah. What is it particularly about that that excites you for ministry? And particularly as you have come from ministry to children, what is it that excites you? I think what excites me the most is that even as more and more research comes out, we are seeing that what help someone stay in the faith and stay connected to the church as in the body of Christ, maybe not the building that they used to go to, but the body of Christ mm. and continuing to be a disciple or follower of Christ is not all the things we think they are. It's not the really great children's ministry. It's not the super fun youth group. It's not the building and the worship style. It's none of that. It is 100% the relationships they have in the body of Christ, a sense of belonging to something that's bigger than them and being able to place themselves in that. And so I am excited about the idea that we can simplify how we make disciples by simply saying, how can we connect? How can we build relationships? And how can that lead to discipleship? And that's why I'm excited about intergenerational ministry. So you got into it through that way. It started to shape your practice. And now you are a significant voice in that space, now helping shape others. So this time uh, at Intergenerate, you've been talking about bridges and barriers. Do you want to explain those terminology? How does that help us to think about intergenerational ministry? So uh, what I wanted to do in my doctorate was actually look at all the research that has been done on age segregation in society, because there's a lot, and y'all aren't going to read it. So I read it, <laughs> and I kind of put it into some categories so that we would be able to apply that research to the church and say, in these areas, we can see where these constructs actually lead to age segregation. And what I had my case study churches do is gather data into those four areas, and then using that data, they were able to identify, like, this is an area, for instance, one of the areas is spatial architectural, that they could point to and say, this is a barrier. We don't have anywhere that all ages can gather and interact. This is a huge barrier. But then they might have in the institutional construct, which would be like our infrastructure, they might say, well, we have something. There's a youth chair on our board. It's not currently filled. We could actually put a youth in there, and that would be a bridge. So my hope in our Connect Generations assessment tool is that churches will be able to gather the data that will help them identify, we really struggle in this area. We have opportunities that are not being utilized or realized in this area. So in one area you can build bridges, and the others you can recognize and tear down a barrier. Excellent. And you are now primarily focused on your ministry at Refocus, which, as you said, does assessment tools and coaching, consultancy, training in this space. Tell us more about that ministry. 
Yeah, Refocus started, of course, as a blog where I was just writing. And um, over time, people started writing back to me and saying, give me more, can I have more information? So I ended up working with churches individually to help them grow. But at this point in time, we do a little bit of everything. We have some curriculum out there for uh, family faith formation so families can learn together. And that carries that, that whole connecting generations in the home. We do help churches through consulting and coaching, helping them move from a more age segregated to a more integrated community. Uh, we work a lot with discipleship and ways to have those kinds of conversations. I speak at conferences and do workshops. So it's kind of a little bit of everything. Yeah. And because of Intergenerate, we are going to start some new things. Um, I'm looking into helping some research groups get started where we're going to go deep on some specific Fantastic. topics. And then some conversation clubs that we've decided to call Table Friends. Okay. And <laughs> we're going to sit around a table and we're just going to encourage one another and have discussions about what's going on in our ministry and just giving each other some advice and encouragement. So a little bit of everything, um, and hopefully that every church will be able to find something that will help them to begin that step of connecting across generations. Wonderful. If people want to find more from you, what you're writing, what you're working on, your organization, where should they go? It's just www.refocusministry.org. And if you want to email me, it's christina at refocusministry.org. Fantastic. Christina, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Right, well, I'm here again with another postcard from Nashville. Um, this time I'm here with Tony Souder. Tony, um, where are you in the world of intergenerational ministry? I am in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is in the United States, of course, yep. and uh, in the south part of the United States, southeast part of the United States. Wonderful. And uh, tell us, when did you... When did intergenerationality as a concept sort of first come across your horizon? Oh, yeah, that... that, that was came on my radar probably we're in 2023 say 15 years ago okay um and it was driven by some of the research that came out of fuller youth institute you know sticky faith yep um and the whole need for you know young people are staying connected to the church when they have these extra relationships with across generational lines and as we saw that and looked at some other research around the country um, we realized, okay, there's there's something here that we're not we haven't been paying attention to. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's that's when it first got on, yeah. in, a, in a real way. Yes, in a real way in yeah. in our radar. And so that as uh, that sticky faith research, look at that sort of five invested adults for every child. You know, something like that is really key. And sticky faith show that it's a protective factor for kids as they move, particularly through high school and out of high school, that they would. more likely to stick with the faith um, and stick with Jesus if they had non-parental adults who were spiritually and relationally and life connected in there uh, with them. So you've turned that around to something super practical that I just absolutely love and I found out about yesterday when I met you for the first time. Um, Tell us about the Pray For Me campaign, which is the organisation you run. How does that address this issue and what does it actually do okay so when we came across that research and some some other research we realized that if if having intergenerational relationships is is the one of the major factors for these young people to stay the course and flourish in their faith and life we realized okay well if that's true how can we make how can we get more adults connect with more young people more natural we started asking that question and wouldn't let it go it's kind of like a pit bull kind of <laughs> taking hold of it and let, not letting go yep. and for a number of months and 
Um, the, the big thing for us is we're trying to, how do we eliminate the barriers? Because we're not the first group that's ever asked that question. No. There's lots of groups that are trying to ask that question. And, but as we kind of dove into that pretty deeply, um, we realized, okay, we have to eliminate a number of barriers and, and how do we make it accessible? How do we make it easy? And how do we make it natural? Um, and so the Pray For Me campaign is trying to do just that. So we, it's rooted in prayer to make it accessible to anybody in the church. The, the young people are connected with adults from different generations. So they might have a 30-year-old, a 50-year-old, and a 70-year-old that, that have said, hey, I'm willing to pray for a young person. Because the, the premise we know we have is that adults care about young people. They just don't know how to get there. Mm -hmm. And young people love to be cared for by adults, but they don't know how to get there. And so the Pray For Me campaign is our way of, of bridging that gap in a natural and winsome way. And so once that happens, the, the adults are... Uh, connected with the young person, and they're willing to pray for them for that year. Now, the next year, this young person that had three from different generations this year, they get three new prayer champions. That's what we call them, prayer champions, because mm -hmm. they're, they're not because of the best prayers around, but they're willing to champion the cause of this young person before yeah. the throne of God. Yeah. And so these, now this young person has six. And so if they, let's just say from 6th grade to 12th grade, they did this every year, they could have 21 different adults outside of, their, outside of their family, outside of the youth ministry that are investing in their lives and in a real way and connecting with them. So for us, it was, it was a transformation of thinking that young people that are, that are drifting through the church and getting to the end and saying, look, I don't really know anybody in the church. Mm. Um, and, and the, at that moment, they're looking at it and they can say, okay, it feels more like an institution rather than what it really is, the family of God. Yes. And so the Pray For Me campaign at its heart is really trying to transform these young people's experience with the church by giving them these relationships that they don't even know they need, mm. but they long for. Absolutely. And so that's what we're doing. And you mentioned that it was, I mean, you, you use the words natural and, and winsome, and, and it is that, but it's also uh, intentional and structured. So you actually provide the scaffolding for these relationships. You've also uh, have, and so you've, you've turned this concept into writing and into books. And so there's uh, even a, a structure and a scaffold around what to pray for and how to pray. Uh, was it, there's seven? Seven essentials. Seven essentials. Take us through the seven essentials. Yeah, the, one of the things that I realized it, when we were first starting out is I looked in the mirror and said, okay, what would help me mm. to be able to stay the course for a year to pray effectively for a young person and not fade like a New Year's resolution, which, I, you know, I've got giftedness in that, um, the fading part. So, uh, so we took and and we created a prayer guide that's wrapped around what you said, the seven essentials. The seven essentials comes from two passages of scripture, Luke 2.52, Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. The essentials there are wisdom and favor. Stature's not a, an essential. Everybody grows in stature except for me. Um, <laughs> But then the other uh, five come from 1 Timothy 4.12. Don't let anybody look down on your youth, but in your speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, set an example for all the believers. So those seven categories are what I call the essentials, primarily because Luke could have said anything he wanted to about Jesus' early life, yeah. but he said that. He said Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. So we know that's, that's important. We want us to pay attention to that. The other is that Paul could have said anything he wanted to to Timothy 
so that he so that Timmy could be Timothy, not Timmy. Um, <laughs> Timothy could be a example for all the believers. But he said, speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. This, pay attention to these things, and you'll be an example for all the believers. So that's kind of why the the, the seven. Are those are the essentials? Yeah, wonderful. And so you've put these together. There's uh, a number of different books now that have sort of grown over time, and some of them have become uh, a bit more specialised. So you've got the the OG, the original one, which I've picked up, which is the adults praying for students, and and by students there uh, to turn into Aussie language, we're talking about teenagers. Yep. Yep. It's basically middle school through college. Okay. Oh, so right through college. Yeah, so it can, post, it can be done school. through college as well, because yeah. because part of it, um, as we're thinking about this, is that that there's a there's there's something special about uh, an empathy factor for a young person that's in kindergarten all the way through college. Once you get out of college, I mean, you're on you now now it's time to be an adult. Mm. And but there's but even in college you can. Get, there's an empathy factor. If somebody said, if a young person came to anybody in the church and said, hey, would you be willing to pray for me this year while I'm finishing up college? Yes. The, the answer is yes. But it just, once you graduate and you're in the workforce, it also it feels weird. But it, it makes it feel appropriate. And, but it also builds this whole network of adults that, around these young people yes. so that they all of a sudden, when they need a network, they have it. And particularly those key transition points, yeah, from, um, I mean, we, we have uh, primary school to high school, you guys have elementary to middle to high, and you, you got those transition points. But then, um, from what I've particularly read in the American context, that transition from high school to college, particularly because you guys, far more than Australia, have a lot of geographic movement during that time, and people are leaving home, leaving town, often even leaving states. Right. Uh, and so having prayerful connection partners through that, I can imagine, would again be a, a good protective factor yes. for kids. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the other thing too is that there's something about knowing that when they come back home, that then they walk into the church, it's not foreign to them. They're, That's right. They're, they still have, have those these, 21 people that right. they walk in and they're um, still there. And absolutely. They say, yeah, I'll pray for you. Uh, absolutely. The, one of the things I tell people all the time is that when you and I walk through the church, we're basically walking through a sea of adults. Yes. And, but we know that if something goes south in our lives, these adults are for us. They're, they're for us. They'll help us. The young people are walking through that same sea of adults. And if we don't do something specific and intentional, as you just mentioned, then they're walking through a sea of adults that they don't have any clue that these people are really for them. Mm -hmm. And we've got to change that. We've got to figure out a natural and winsome way to transform their experience with what God intends to be a massive resource for them in the church. That's fantastic. So we've got that one. You've got one uh, that then changes some of the language and helps you pray for younger kids. There's a, a student guide, so the students themselves can be praying along with the same seven essentials, the same themes as they know they are being prayed for. Yep. And then your latest one is uh, particularly focused on grandparents to help the grandparents pray for their kids. And, and we know that there are a number of um, Christian grandparents who uh, maybe maybe there's a, a spiritual gap uh, in their generations yep. and so they'd be praying for their kids but even not they can be praying for their kids as well where are people going to find the pray for me campaign to check it out for themselves pray for me campaign.com there you go, it's pretty straightforward yes pretty straightforward and simple and they can uh, find everything they need to know how, what it's about how to launch it 
right there on that website. Super practical way of forming those intergenerational relationships. Thanks, Tony. Yeah, absolutely. Great to be here. Well, I'm here for another postcard from Nashville, this time with Gene Rollkey Partain. Uh, I've got your bio here, Gene, that says you hold a PhD in education, curriculum and instruction with specialization in youth, families and communities. And you're currently the senior scholar at Search Institute. Does that sound correct? That sounds great, yep. Wonderful. Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, Search Institute? What is it? Where is it located? What kind of work do you do? Yes, happy to do that. Search Institute is a um, nonprofit organization based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, we work actually nationally and internationally around um, positive youth development or applied research organization, and we focus on um, what young people and their families need to, to thrive and, and um, grow up successfully. And so we work with schools, faith communities, youth organizations, uh, social service agencies, and others who to help them think about, understand the factors that contribute to young people thriving, and then how do you then turn those ideas into practical um, strategies for improving the well-being of children and youth. Yeah, wonderful. And so uh, not explicitly a Christian organization, a secular research um, but partner a lot with churches. Yeah, we've had we have a long history of 60, 60 years of working with and in faith communities. So we um, try to bring the best social science to the faith community. Mm. So for for most of us who are listening, who are located in Australia, very similar similar to McCrindle Research. I think we'll do a very similar job in in our patch. Um, so we're here at Intergenerational Conference, um, Intergenerate. When did intergenerationality first become uh, on your horizon? When did that become a term that you realized was something to talk about, something that sparked your interest and, and realized it was relevant to your research? Yeah, actually, that's a really great question. I think Search Institute was one of the organizations that long before I was at Search began talking about intergenerational relationships back in the 1970s. Right. And then um, when we got, when I got to Search in the early 1990s, we were began talking about what are the assets kids need in their lives or the strengths they need in their lives. And one of the ones that captured people's attention was the power of having uh, multiple adults in their lives as resources, um, as sources of support. And so many people at this conference are talking about how our research on the power of adult relationships is part of what catalyzed their interest in intergenerational relationships and in intergenerational communities and congregations. And so we've been, I began working on that as soon as I got to search in the 90s to talk about how do you create intergenerational congregations uh, to support young people's development. And so that's been part of our work for a long time. Um, and now we're really, really focusing on what, kind of, what are the kind of relationships that young people need in their lives to, to thrive. And within congregations, they're, We've, we've been saying now for a long time, they're one of the few places in um, Western society, at least, where kids have the opportunity to spend time with multiple generations in over sustained periods of time. There's and we see that's critical. Yeah. Yeah. A, a unique location in churches that actually provide 
multiple right. generations in the same space at the same time. At least theoretically. At least theoretically. At least yes. that, theoretically. Yes. So that's part of what we're inviting congregations to think through. How do we really take advantage of that space and use it so they're not just passing by each other silently, but actually engaging in meaningful, authentic relationships? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's really, really valuable. And obviously, what we're here and we're passionate about. Um, you've done a couple of things here this week. Uh, you've had a paper um, we've just come from. Um, which asked the question, what could happen if we really nurtured meaningful developmental relationships in church? Uh, so, I don't know, what could happen? Well, I think, um, as I said, we, we, churches are a place where relationships could happen among generations because folks are there. Um, I think the, the mindset we have about relationships is often not broad enough or deep enough about what relationships really could be. So our research is really pointing to how do we broaden how we understand relationships to see it is about caring, but it's about so much more around relationships where we learn to challenge each other to grow, where we support each other on our journeys, where we share power with each other so that we um, can each find our roles and take responsibility in the faith journey and where we expand possibilities so people can find a sense of vocation and find new things that um, expand our horizons. All of those are part of what happened through relationships mm -hmm. and happen really well through intergenerational relationships. Yeah. And so then how do you create a culture where that's what happens, what's in the water, if you were, in, in, in the faith communities where people of all ages are doing those things intentionally for each other. And I think my sense is that those would be vibrant communities in which young people are growing and thriving and people of all ages would find that um, it's, a, it's a community where they feel welcomed and valued and included. Um, and um, so to me, that's, to me, it's a, be the kind of communities that at least in the United States, where we could begin to address the sense of loneliness and the sense of isolation that people so often feel and disconnectedness. Yes, yeah, that uh, that bowling alone sense. Yeah. Um, uh, what's his name? Um, um, Robert Putnam. Robin Putnam. Yes, uh, that that loneliness and social isolation. Yeah, in suburbia. And it's got, yeah, it's gotten even worse since the pandemic. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, and as you say, churches are at least potentially uniquely capable of creating those spaces but being aware of them and engaging in them uh no that that's that's fascinating so just to repeat there was those five steps that um developmental relationships express care number one number two challenge growth thirdly provide support fourthly share power and fifthly, expand possibilities. So just to yeah, note, identify each of those. That's really, really helpful. Um, you're also running a workshop here uh, called Filling the Gap in Middle Childhood. Um, how are you defining middle childhood and, and what is that gap? Right, so uh, middle childhood is roughly the ages of eight to 11, depending on which scholar you follow. And we did some work supported by the Lilly Endowment to try to understand how young people are developing spiritually during that age group, what the research is, how families are thinking about it, the spiritual development during that age group, and then how faith communities are being responsive in that, um, in, in supporting children and families during that age group. Are we and, generally doing a good job? Um, I would say basically no. Okay. <laughs> That's disappointing. <laughs> At least in the United States. Uh, I think... Um, and again, it was a small study, so maybe I missed something. But I think what we're finding is that 
um, for example, neuroscience is, is really pointing to kids developing a lot in terms of their um, deep learning around really beginning to think deeply about connecting their thoughts and um, um, being able to be reflective and all these other things. And right now we're doing a lot of rote memory and some other things and playing games with kids, which all kids like games, I get that. And yet they're really capable of so much more in the during those elementary years of um, ages 8 to 12. Um, families are very interested in some topics that, that churches aren't even addressing around kids' moral development and some of the other um, issues uh, around how their kids are growing up and fitting into society. And I don't know that those are on the radar for a lot of churches. Mm. And so there's just this disconnection and... We were talking to, to families mostly that were not part of faith communities. And so oh, we're interesting. Trying to, trying to see how do, how do we begin thinking about how do we begin connecting with families and supporting families and societies, dealing with spiritual development with the understanding that spirituality is part of everybody's life. Um, and how do we begin connecting to the story and, and faith of and the, 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 the stories that faith communities have to tell? So part of the findings is that uh, there are families who are outside the church who are asking questions of deep importance, but which the church is not answering or they're not hearing the church answer those questions? They don't see a place where those questions are being discussed. Or, yes. And we ask them and they say, well, I don't see. These are things that they're, at, they're, they're wondering about and they don't see a place where they can have those conversations. So there's a possibility there of churches stepping up and actually helping be aware, parents be aware of these questions, and and we here is a place where you will help find answers to those. If there's a place that you can have, find answers to those, if we don't try to cram the answers down their throats. Right. Okay. So it has to be dialogical. Yeah, it has to be dialogical. It has to be a place where the families will feel safe, and where they feel like they can be heard and not just be told what to think. Yes. And so the, so so there's there's a lot to unpack there. There is. And there's a lot to think about. How do we think about? inviting kids to be in those places of deep listening and learning, particularly in time when their time is fragmented with social media and all these other things that tell them they shouldn't be thinking in those deep ways, that they should be able to think fast. Yes. And so, um, and yet our traditions actually invite us into that kind of deep thinking and deep reflection. Yes. And so there's, I think there's a real opportunity, but it requires us to, to rethink how we imagine what childhood is like. Yeah, our churches have the resources available in our traditions, yeah. just you know, things we need to grasp hold of, reclaim perhaps, yeah. and, and step into. Uh, that's uh, that's going to be plenty of time for us, but just tell us a little bit more about how people can find out about you and the Search Institute. I think the easiest way is to go on the website to search, it's www.searchinstitute, all one word, .org. Wonderful. Fantastic. Thank you, Jane. Thank Thanks you. so much. The Effective Ministry Podcast is a production of YouthWorks in Sydney. We want to see effective youth and children's ministry in every church. And one of the ways that you can help us do that is by letting people know about this podcast in all the usual ways, like, comment, share, and review on your favorite social media and podcasting platform. If you've got comments, thoughts, or questions for this podcast, you can email us at effectiveministrypodcast at youthworks.net. And also check out youthworks.net for other ways that YouthWorks can help you have an effective youth and children's ministry in your church.